Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 20. The Football Match. In the spring of '09, I was wondering whether Carno had actually forgotten all about me. What had happened to all that talk of Charlie and me being the next big players? It had all gone quiet since his visit to Warrington, and I hadn't seen Charlie for months. Still, there was nothing for it but to muddle through until I turned up at the Fun Factory one Monday morning and was told that Carno wanted to see me. I trotted up the stairs to his office and found him with his nose buried in some paperwork as usual. "'You wanted to see me, Governor?' Without looking up. Carno gave his trademark little cough. "'I hear good things, Mr Dando, I hear good things,' he said then. "'Time, you were a number two, I think.' "'Thank you, Governor,' I said. "'The football match. Harry Weldon's company, rehearsing at the Montpellier.' I stood there, pleased as punch, of course, waiting for more. Such a momentous step up surely merited a little speech, a pat on the back. Carno looked up, frowned. "'Still here?' he said. I ran all the way over to the Montpellier to join my new company, thrilled to be taking a big step up at last, and wondering gleefully what Charlie would think when he heard about it. If only Tilly had been there to share the moment with. Has anybody here seen Tilly? T-I-L-L-Y. I pushed through the doors into the back of the stalls, ready to introduce myself, but the place appeared to be empty. Then I noticed a small wisp of smoke rising from the front row. The smoker turned to look over his shoulder. It was Charlie. "'Aha!' he cried. "'Have you been assigned to this punishment detail as well?' He stood to shake my hand. "'Unbelievable,' he said. "'To put us with that great blowhard Harry Weldon. "'What have we done to deserve that? "'Still, at least I'm to be a number two at last.' "'So am I,' I said. Charlie frowned, taking this in, and then nodded slowly. "'Hey,' he said. "'You heard about George Craig, didn't you? "'What about him?' "'Well, he's gone to work for Wall Pink.' I whistled. Wouldn't mind being a fly on the wall at that dinner table, I said, and Charlie grinned. Lily Craig was still with Carnos, of course. Here, Charlie said suddenly, watch this. Fred Kitchen taught it to me. He took the cigarette from his mouth and flicked it nonchalantly over his shoulder. It spun up in the air and dropped behind his back, where he kicked it away squarely with the heel of his shoe. The cigarette end flew through the air, showering sparks as it went, and bounced neatly off the bald head of a stocky fellow in a waistcoat and shirt sleeves who was emerging from a side door. Good trick, I said. The newcomer looked up to the ceiling to see where the cigarette end had come from, as we were the picture of innocence. Then he came over. "'Are you the new number twos? he said. "'I'm T. Ellis Buxton, company manager. "'Now you'll forgive me, but this show is an organisational night—' Buxton's attention was caught by something over my shoulder. I looked around, and Buxton was already scuttling over to greet a new arrival, not exactly tugging his forelock, but making a tugging gesture near where a forelock might have been had he had any hair left. "'No such worries for the newcomer.' He had a shock of red hair sprouting in all directions, and the colour seemed to have leached down into the face beneath. "'Good morning, Harry. 
Buxton smarmed. Can I bring you a cup of tea or... 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 No tea, tar, tea, the newcomer said, with the air of one wheeling out a practised witticism. Best get on with it. Right, of course, yes, Buxton said, beckoning frantically to me and Charlie with his hand flapping behind his own buttocks. We approached. These are the new men, Harry, Buxton wheedled. This is Arthur Dando and Charlie Chaplin. Sid's brother, right? Weldon barked in Charlie's face. You don't look like him. Charlie's eyes narrowed at the blast of ale on the big man's breath. Beer for breakfast. Sid's my half-brother. Thought so? That explains it, then. Weldon's face set in a self-satisfied expression, and he folded his arms smugly. Buxton jumped into action. I thought this one for Ratty, and the other one for... Wrong, Buxton, wrong. To the way round. Listen, don't look like a footballer. He looks like a gust of wind would carry him off. He looks like a good fart and knock him over completely. He could be a villain. Here he prodded Charlie in the chest. Are that other one there? He could do Ratty. Got me? As you say, Harry, as you say, quite right, quite right, Buxton fluttered, mopping his brow with a hanky. All right, I'm off. I'm on the course at eleven with Harry Tate, if the weather holds up. Charlie was astonished. But aren't you going to rehearse? What for? I know what I'm doing. You're the one who needs to rehearse, boy. And Weldon gave us a last contemptuous sneer, turned on his heel and left. I told you it was a punishment, Charlie muttered. It was left to our predecessors in the roles of Ratty and the Villain, a pair of anemic youths called Gilbert Childs and Will Pulusky Jr., to walk us through the act. At the end of the day, the two of them were slapping each other on the back with glee as they made their way out. I couldn't help feeling they looked like a couple of chaps who'd just been released from jail. Charlie and I repaired to the pub to discuss the matter over a beer, me, and a port, him. There's not a laugh in the thing until Weldon comes on, I pointed out. Aye, and I'll bet that's how he likes it too, Charlie said grimly. You know, I mused, just because there's never been a laugh before Weldon comes on up till now doesn't mean there can't be laughs before he comes on from now on, does it? A slow grin spread over Charlie's face. We chinked our glasses and a little pact was made there and then. Me and Charlie against Mr Harry Weldon, Esquire. <laughs> The football match, it has to be said, was one of the governor's greatest spectacles, and Stiffy, the lead part, was perhaps the greatest star vehicle he ever devised. Where in Won't Detain You, he had created an ocean liner on stage, and the ocean too on that first night, and in Mumming Birds, another whole theatre inside the theatre, in the football match he did no less a thing than staging an FA Cup final. The scenario, as laid down, kicks off at a pub called The Bull, where a football team, the Midnight Wanderers, are put through their paces by Ratty, the team's star forward. We discover that there is an insidious plot afoot to fix the match, to which end a villain is lurking on the premises. Stiffy, the team's goalkeeper, a figure of manly beauty, arrives late and three sheets to the wind, and the villain sidles up to offer him wealth beyond the dreams of avarice to throw the game. The climactic scene was the match itself, between the Midnight Wanderers and the Middleton Pycans. A full match would be staged with 22 players, a referee and a crowd of spectators. Stiffy would first try to hand the game to the Pycans, then he would have an attack of conscience and decide to thwart the villain's machinations. Finally, the whole thing would be brought to a close with a violent rainstorm and a great amount of energetic mudslinging before the referee declared the match abandoned. It always had to be the last act on the bill because of the mess and the company would feature 100 people on stage at one time or another. It's little wonder that Mr T. Ellis Buxton had so little hair left. A key part of the spectacle was a huge panoramic backdrop with a great crowd of spectators painted on it, 
A mob of real supers lined up in the foreground on a raked ground row, big ones at the front and small ones at the back, standing higher up the rake, cunningly sorted to give an illusion of perspective. Behind them was the cloth, which was very cleverly done, so that the living faces seemed to merge into the painted ones. And there were slits in the cloth, so what you were sure was a painted face could suddenly be replaced by a real one, one of a team of supers swarming around behind on stepladders, who would shout out a line, then withdraw and reappear elsewhere. There were arms sewn to the front of the cloth, very light, that were made to wave handkerchiefs and even throw little hats into the air by bursts from the giant electric fans concealed at floor level. It was a stunning coup, one of Carno's finest. My first sight of the famed backcloth came a couple of days later. I turned up for work to find that there was to be no principal's rehearsal as Weldon was indisposed. I rolled along to the fun factory to find everyone there in a frightful panic. The cloth had been taken down and rolled wrongly while still wet and muddy from the rainstorm the last time the act had played, and whole sections of it were utterly ruined. The whole panorama was laid out on the factory floor, and Alf Reeves was close to despair. "'I don't suppose you can paint faces, can you, son?' he said. "'I don't know,' I said, feeling sorry for him, but I'll give it a go. I hadn't painted anything since I was a child, but it quickly turned out that I had a real knack— I found I could produce pretty good representations of faces I knew from memory, and I began to enjoy slipping people I knew into the football crowd. I painted in my brother, Lance, my father, Mr Luscombe, and the Rotter from Cambridge. I painted in Charlie and Clara Bell, and quite a few Tilly Becketts before I was finished. Not that she was on my mind or anything. Has anybody here seen Tilly? T-I-L-L-Y. Now, the other brilliant stroke Carno pulled in the football match was this. Every night we'd enact a cup final right there on the stage. 22 players, a referee and dozens of supporters. And everywhere we played, there'd be a handful of famous footballers right up there with us. Charlie Athersmith, for instance, and Jimmy Crabtree, who each played for England above a dozen times and were in the legendary Aston Villa team that had won the league championship five times back in the 90s, not to mention the double in 97. Crabtree's sartorial quirk, if you like, was to play in a neckerchief while Athersmith had been known to grab an umbrella from the crowd when it was raining and carry on galloping up and down the wing underneath it. The outside left for England opposite Athersmith when he was in his prime was flying Fred Spikesley of the Wednesday, and he was another Carno regular. Then there was Billy Ragg, a great slow beanpole of a centre-half who won the cup with Nottingham Forest in 98, Tommy Arkston of Derby County, Joe Clark of Hibernians, Jack Wheat of Birmingham City, all pretty much guaranteed a round of applause in their respective home towns. By and large, these footballers were in their mid to late thirties and had finished their playing careers. All of them belonged to the first generation of professional players to reach the end of the road and realise there was still a living to be made for a few more decades. If you got them all together for a pint, they could really wear you down talking about money. The greatest pleasure of all for me, though, was that all of these greats of the game were introduced onto the stage by the referee, who was none other than Mike Asher, my old mate from Jailbirds, who reckoned I still owed him a few pints for saving my life on that tour and I didn't argue. Did you know, he said indignantly as we relived that escapade, that every Jailbirds company now has a lumpy in it? And do we get any credit for that? Do we, heck is like. I reckon Sid told him it was all his idea. So, come the first night of the show, well, the first for Charlie and me, the two of us had got together some bits of business to kick things off with a bang. We still hadn't been vouchsafed a single rehearsal with Harry Weldon himself. Indeed, the great man didn't even arrive until midway through the evening's bill, and the stink of beer on his breath was strong enough to make a unicyclist wobble unsteadily as she passed through a cloud of it in the wings on her way onto the stage. Up goes the curtain, and there are the midnight wanderers all ready to go through their paces. Ratty the forward, yours truly, steps forward to lead the session. 
Except I can't find my shorts, and so I borrow stiffies which are too big for me, so that every time I raise my arms above my head, down they come to half-mast, and I have to snatch them up again. When the rest of the team behind me begin to copy my actions exactly, then you had a training routine like nothing you'd ever seen before. It was a simple gag, but it had the place in a roar. I glanced into the wings to give Charlie the nod to enter, and caught sight of Weldon, pop-eyed with amazement, his big mouth wide open, and T. Ellis Buxton standing next to him, laughing fit to bust. On comes Charlie as the villain, in a typical Edwardian villain's get-up, the topcoat, the cane, the spats, and a voluminous Inverness cape. He has his back to the audience at first as he sneaks around our exercise room, then he suddenly turns to reveal a bright red nose, which brought him a big laugh, and then he falls headlong over a dumbbell and catches his cane on a punching bag, becoming involved in a fight with it when it swings back and hits him in the face. I saw Weldon's great red face slide slowly out from behind the tab, like a sunrise turned through 90 degrees. His eyes were out on stalks. He couldn't believe what was happening. There'd never been so much as a snigger before his entrance, remember, and now there was a veritable riot. All he could think, in his beer-fuddled brain, was to stop it, somehow, anyhow. So out he comes, far too early. He's not been introduced, so all he can do is stand there, while Charlie whirls about him, looking for a button which has popped off his trousers. Charlie picks something up, then throws it away in disgust. "'Those confounded rabbits!' he cries, and Weldon grabs him hard by the arm, trying to hold him still, so he can bring him into focus. "'Quick! I'm undone!' Charlie says to him, ad-lib. "'Have you a pin?' And Weldon just stands there looking at him, lost. He doesn't know if he has a pin or not, or whether he's even supposed to have one. He thinks he might not even be in the right theatre. Afterwards, the other members of the troupe patted us both on the back and were fulsome in their praise, especially Buxton, who was in full flow when Harry Weldon stuck his big angry face into our dressing room. "'I was just saying, Harry,' cried Buxton enthusiastically, "'that I can't remember ever seeing the show go down so well.' Everyone looked at Weldon, and I had the distinct impression that he'd come in to tear a strip off our hides, but couldn't now do it without losing face. "'Aye,' he said, after a heavy pause. "'That were... all right.' And if looks could kill, Charlie and I would both have left the theatre that night, feet first. Touring the country with the football match took us right into the summer of '09, and Charlie and I were at daggers drawn with Harry Weldon more or less all the way. Harry was a northern comic with a thick accent and what Charlie called a cretinous style. His speech also came with a strange trademark gurgling noise in his throat, possibly due to the fact that he seldom took to the boards without pouring at least eight pints of ale down it. In the north he would go down well, whereas in Plymouth, Southampton and Bristol he was a lot more hit and miss, shall we say. In Belfast the audiences didn't take to Weldon at all, and neither, as it happened, did the press. The paper there gave him a terrible panning, calling him an incomprehensible boob gargling away like a broken pump. While Charlie and I were described as bright and promising, and we were the ones given credit for bringing the house down. At the theatre that evening, Weldon was incandescent, as well as pretty much tanked to the gills. He was supposed to give me, as Ratty, a couple of slaps to liven me up after taking too much of the training oil. On this night, driven to fury by the critic of the Belfast Evening Telegraph, he let me have it full in the face. I saw stars, I'm telling you, and the blood streamed from my nose and down my jersey, which fortunately was a red one. Later, in another scene outside the turnstiles at the football ground, he suddenly stepped backwards, knowing full well that Charlie was close behind, and crushed him against the wall. Charlie slumped down to the floor, making an extra laugh out of it, but we could all see he was badly winded. Afterwards, there was a dreadful scene. Charlie was beside himself and tried to brain Weldon with one of the dumbbells. 
I had to get between them to break it up, even though I wanted to floor Weldon myself for the thump he'd given me. Leave him be, I said to Charlie. He's only jealous. Jealous? Weldon scoffed. Of you two? Why, I've more talent in me arse than you have in your whole bodies. So you have, I retorted. You can use yours to talk out of. The footballers, too, were not particularly fond of our leader. They were a venal bunch, and Weldon never let an opportunity go by to taunt them about how much money he made. The bad feeling all came to a head the week we were at the Exeter Hippodrome. One night after the show, the footballers beckoned me, Charlie and Mike Asher over to their smoky cabal in the pub. "'Hey up, boys,' Fred Spikesley whispered. "'You fancy making a bob or two? "'What's up?' I asked. "'Exhibition game.' From time to time, as it travelled the country, the football match company would play against a local team to drum up publicity or goodwill and would usually get a decent crowd along to see our handful of ex-internationals play. They liked to see as well whether the comedians had two left feet. I'd played in a couple of these matches and not done too badly. Scored a goal in off my knee in Bury, I did. It's all sorted out, Fred said. Arthur Chadwick, the manager of Exeter City, he played for England alongside Jimmy Crabtree there. Now then, we're getting a bet down with Chadwick and his lads. They'll match what we put down and we play winner Tex all with gate money on top. Now are you in? Mike, Charlie and I looked at each other. How much? Mike said. Crabtree blew a column of smoke up to the ceiling and eyed us coolly. Twenty quid, each. We're all in for the same. And when we win, you'll triple it easy. I exhaled slowly. Twenty quid. That was more than a month's money, and it would about clean me out if it went wrong. I looked at Mike and Charlie, and they were clearly thinking the same. Jimmy Crabtree leaned over conspiratorially. They're expecting to beat us easy-like. Bunch of old crocs and actors like us. But Buxton reckons we're getting Jack Fitchett next week. Used to play for Plymouth. And Bob Sharp, who were Bristol City skipper not so long back. There's the five of us regulars. You lads are decent enough. That gives us a right good chance, I reckon. Eh, lads? The other four, Spikesley, Athersmith, Arxedon and Rag, nodded seriously in agreement. Crabtree looked us right in the eye. In. After a beat, Mike, Charlie and I put our hands out. In. Good. Good, lads, said Spikesley. Now all we need to do is make damn sure that silly-ass Weldon don't get wind on it. There seemed a fair chance that he wouldn't as well, as he spent most days on a golf course somewhere or other. We reckoned without the deviousness of Arthur Chadwick, the Exeter City manager, though, who turned up at the theatre the night before the game, introduced himself to our number one, and said how much he was looking forward to the match. Well, once Weldon knew there was a game he hadn't been invited to, he insisted on coming along. What's more, he insisted on playing centre-forward as well, and playing to the crowd with his slapstick antics. He barged his own teammates off the ball. He cropped Fred Spikesley with a boot to the ankle. He gave away penalty kick after penalty kick. And even though Tommy Arxton and Charlie Athersmith were inspired, the final score was Exeter City 6, the Fred Carno Company 3, with Weldon having contributed a hat-trick of own goals. That went well, he cried, as we trooped off the pitch at St James's Park, beaten and flat bloody broke. That evening after the show, we convened in the pub next to the theatre. Mike, Charlie, the footballers and I... Nursing the frugal half-pints of ale we could now barely afford, hoping against hope that some flush punter would feel like treating us. The mood was sombre, resentful, and when Harry Weldon, the big ginger goof, swaggered over to join us, you could almost hear the teeth grinding. "'So, tell me again,' Weldon gurgled. "'You lot played for however many years, and in all that time you had a maximum wage. Not a minimum wage, a maximum wage!' The footballers glowered at him. This was a sore point. So none of you duffers has ever topped four quid a week. I make twelve times as much as that, he cried. That means I make more in a week than the whole Aston Villa team. 
Hey, I'll tell you something else at all. I can make twice as much again as I do now. No, three times as much. What the hell are you talking about? I muttered sourly. I could. What's Marie Lloyd make? A hundred? A hundred and twenty a week? I know for a fact that Arthur Roberts gets a hundred and sixty. What do you think of them potatoes? The footballers look pretty sick, I can tell you. Yes, but Arthur Roberts and Marie Lloyd, they're solos, aren't they? I said. Bah, I know that. Carno will never pay that sort of wage. The only way you could make that sort of money is if you left and set up as a solo turn yourself. Well, who's to say I mightn't just do that? Weldon blustered. You'll never do it, I said. Weldon puffed himself up indignantly. I might, he insisted. No, you won't, I said. You haven't the nerve. You're tied to Carno's apron strings so tight you'll never be able to let go. What do you know about it? Weldon spat. George Roby says so, I said. That stopped him dead in his tracks. Roby? George Roby said that about me, that I'd never have nerve to leave Carno. He did. When did he? Just before he said that you'd be nothing without Carno's name on the bill, I said, giving the knife an extra little twist. Weldon looked as though all the air had been let out of him, and he left for his bed shortly afterwards. I'd probably pay for baiting him, but he'd asked for it, and the footballers clubbed together and bought me a drink, which wasn't like them. And whether what I said had anything to do with what happened later, well, who knows? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Chapter 21. He of the Funny Ways. For weeks after that ill-fated exhibition game, Mike, Charlie and I were absolutely on our uppers. Losing 20 quid was enough to cause us all considerable grief in the belt-tightening area. The footballers seemed to spend all their free time trying to get Harry to bet with them, but he would always throw his hands up at the sight of a pack of cards or the little paddle they used for the three-coin toss. A fool and his body are soon parted, he'd gurgle backing away. You lot should know that with your maximum wage. A little relief from penury came in the shape of my old friend Mr Luscombe. He was always eager for tidbits about the world of the theatre, and so I'd kept up a friendly correspondence with him. He'd gone down from Cambridge that summer, after, by his own account, burning brightly in another footlights extravaganza at the end of his last term, and he was now obliged to his chagrin to make a start in the family import-export, or it may have been vice versa, business. It was a surprise then when he presented himself at the stage door of the theatre we were about to grace with the football match in Sheffield of all places at the Empire Palace. You made the piece sound so enthralling I just had to see it for myself, he gushed. I introduced him to Charlie and Mike. This is Mr Luscombe, I began. Oh, come, come, Luscombe cried. No more of that master-servant nonsense. I've left the college for good and all. You may all call me Rafe, and jolly pleased I am to make your acquaintance. He pronounced his first name to rhyme with safe, and that was the first time I ever knew it. 
After the show, which he adored, he wanted to have a late supper at a nearby restaurant. I tried to plead poverty, but he was adamant. Don't worry about that. It's all on me, he said, far too loudly. Charlie and Mike were almost audibly salivating, and the footballers seemed to have a sort of sixth sense where free food was concerned. So the upshot was that Luscombe stood a whole bunch of us a handsome meal, just about our first since Weldon's dozy antics in Exeter had bankrupted us all. Now, during the course of this splendid repast, the subject of Luscombe's own theatrical endeavours came up, and Fred Spikesley had the notion of sneaking our generous host into the football match, probably, if I know Spikesley, in the hope that he might stick around and provide more free dinners. There were, of course, very nearly a hundred people involved in the act, and it turned out to be a simple, or perhaps I should say cheap, matter to persuade one of them, a super by the name of Claude, to stand down and let Ralph Luscombe take his place for a night. Luscombe wasn't just standing on stage cheering either, he actually had plenty to do. He was one of the fellows running around behind the back of the painted backdrop, clambering up and down the little ladders, sticking his head through the slits here and there to shout, Play up, Pycans! and the like. Well... He was the happiest soul you could ever hope to see. For I on honeydew have fed and drunk the milk of paradise, he beamed seraphically afterwards, reliving the sheer thrill of it all. I fully expected this to be a one-night-only treat, but the next evening he appeared at the stage door and thrust another ten bob into Claude the Super's hand, whereupon Claude the Super trotted off to the pub to spend his windfall and Luscombe gleefully took his place again. He stayed with us all of that week, and all of the following week in Derby too, living the life of his dreams, as well as, I'm ashamed to report, being ruthlessly fleeced by my colleagues. But still, he was enjoying himself, and because we were using the backdrop I myself had painted back at the fun factory, onto which I'd painted Luscombe's likeness here and there, when he stuck his head through to shout his lines, it really did look as though the painting was coming eerily to life. At the end of that second week, however, he came hurtling into our dressing room at the end of the act, face white as a sheet, a cold muck sweat on his brow. "'In the audience!' he gasped. "'I saw him! Large as life!' "'Who, for goodness' sake?' I said, holding him by the shoulders to get him to calm down. "'Brother!' Luscombe wheezed. "'Your brother? What on earth's he doing here?' I said, baffled. I knew Luscombe Major, of course, as he too had been a student at the college, a painfully serious individual who seemed to regard his time at Cambridge as something of a nuisance, keeping him from the business of import and export, profit and loss for which he was born. Frankly, you'd have been as likely to find the Archbishop of Canterbury at the palace in Derby as the elder Mr Luscombe. "'Oh, he's looking for me, of course,' Rafe Luscombe sighed, sinking into a chair. "'They told me, my father and my brother, "'that I should be dispatched to our South American office "'if I didn't cease my infatuation with Dame Theatre. "'Oh, I'm for the high jump now.' "'We were last on the bill, so the audience were already on the loose. "'I peeked out into the corridor to see if the coast was clear. "'Ho! Oh, you there! Dando!' a voice rang out. "'Mr Luscombe, is it not?' I said, "'pulling the door closed behind me as I stepped out. "'From the old college. What a surprise!' Luscombe Major was puce with indignation, or perhaps his stiff white collar was too tight. "'I mean to take my brother with me back to London at once. Where is he?' "'Your brother?' I said, scratching my head, as people do when puzzled. "'Whatever makes you think he might be here of all places?' "'A letter, damn your cheek! He wrote to our mother, and the envelope was franked in this godforsaken town. I knew I'd find him here, amongst you lowlifes and vagabonds, and I have!' With that he shoved past me into the dressing room. I peered over his shoulder and saw only the innocent faces of Mike, Charlie, Fred Spikesley and a wicker costume hamper which Charlie Athersmith was sitting on, lighting up a pipe. Mr Luscombe, I said, a thought occurs. Would you follow me this way? 
I led him to the stairs which led up to the stage. We had to pause there to allow a seemingly endless procession of semi-clad chorus girls to pass by, which discomforted the elder Luscombe no end. "'You see, your brother and I were friendly, as I'm sure you know, and so when I painted this—' We stepped out onto the stage behind the fire curtain, where the football match backdrop was still hanging in plain view. I took the liberty of using his likeness. Here, you see, and here, and again here.' "'No, no, 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 no,' Luscombe's brother said, pacing in front of the cloth and poking at it with a suspicious finger. "'I saw him! I saw him speak!' I slipped around behind and stuck my face through one of the hidden slits in the design. "'No, sir, I'm afraid not. It was an optical illusion, do you see?' "'What the?' I quickly moved to another position and popped my face through there. "'It's very convincing. Do you not agree?' Luscombe Major blustered. "'It can't be. I, I mean to say, I saw him!' "'I saw Rafe. Didn't I?' He came with me, as meek as a little lamb, down to the stage door and out into the open air. A little cloud of chorus girls in feathered headdresses bustled by us, and he averted his eyes until they were past and twittering along the alleyway towards the front of house. A fellow with a ginger beard followed close behind, clutching a carpet bag, excusing himself gruffly as he squeezed through. "'But the letter?' Luscombe Senior ventured, no longer sure of his ground. "'I'm sure there'll be a perfectly reasonable explanation when you see him,' I said. "'Do give him my regards, won't you?' "'In the distance ahead of him, the feathered headdresses all turned right and out of sight. "'Something caught in the breeze swirled around Luscombe the Elder's distracted feet "'as he walked away, and then was whisked up the alleyway towards me, "'coming to rest in a puddle a yard or so away. "'It was a ginger Every time we brought the football match to a new town, I would be sure to attend the band call on the Monday. My intention, of course, was to run my eye over the other acts on the bill and see if Tilly might somehow be amongst them. Has anybody here seen Tilly? T-I-L-L-Y... It was not as far-fetched a hope as it might sound, as the music hall kaleidoscope would spin and change the multicoloured view every week, and coincidences of that kind would often occur. No such luck, though. I did see one familiar face, though, the week we were at the palace in Leicester. There was a solo act, tucked away in a graveyard slot right after the interval, while people were still finding their seats, who was billed, rather endearingly, as He of the Funny Ways. And who should it be but Stan Jefferson? We greeted one another like old pals, and sat together in the stalls to catch up. "'Well, I left the old man, finally,' Stan explained cheerfully. "'How did he take it?' Stan grinned. "'Ah, not well, actually.' The phrase, never darken my doorstep again, was bandied about pretty freely. He'll get over it. But what about you? And what about the lovely Mrs. Dando? Is she with you? Not this time, I said. Shame. I suppose there wasn't a part for her in a sketch about football, Stan said. He of the funny ways had very funny ways indeed, to my way of thinking. That evening, Charlie and I watched Stan from the wings, and he had a struggle at first just getting the audience's attention after they'd been to the bar at the interval. He did it, though and by the end of his five minutes every night that week, the crowd were laughing again and ready to enjoy the rest of the turns. "'It's pretty simple stuff, though, isn't it?' Charlie sniffed. And it was, he was right. But Stan was able to win an audience round with, well, with his funny ways. I didn't believe Charlie when he tried to put Stan's act down. He was cleverer than that. He saw another potential rival, that's what he saw. On the last night in the bar, we wished one another luck. "'What's next?' I asked Stan. He shrugged. I turned to Charlie. Stan would do well with Carno, don't you think? Stan brightened, but Charlie sucked air in through his teeth, doubtful, discouraging. 
It's not as if we could actually do anything, though, is it? The governor likes to dig up his uncut gems for himself. He doesn't really go to the smaller houses, and he doesn't like being pushed into things. Remember Warrington? I supposed he had a point, but Stan's chin had just about hit the floor. I decided to drop the subject. It was just a thought, I said. Yes, well, maybe one day like, Stan said. But that day seemed a long way distant. It was the autumn of that year, 1909, a sunny afternoon, and a little group of us were standing out in front of the Bell's house. Clara was there, and Edie, clutching her dolly, the ubiquitous Miss Churchhouse, as usual. Charlie Bell crouched down, poking away at a flower bed with a trowel. Mrs Carner was ruffling the hair of her little lad, Leslie, and quizzing me for gossip about the Governor and his empire. Suddenly I realised that Clara and Edith Carno were no longer listening to me, but were looking at something behind me in the street. Their faces had hardened, and Charlie Bell was slowly rising to his feet. I turned, and there was a brougham gliding slowly past, the driver holding the grey horse at a gentle trotting pace. If I hadn't been able to see the passengers I would have recognised it easily enough, as it was the Governor's pride and joy, painted maroon with gleaming brass fittings, with Fred Carno's comics painted boldly on the door. Inside I could see Carno and Maria, the woman he'd introduced to me as his wife, chatting away, laughing, affecting not to notice whose houses they were passing. "'Oh, my dear,' Clara sighed. There was a resignation in her voice that told me this wasn't the first time this sort of thing had happened. "'It's quite all right,' the real Mrs Carno replied stoically. "'Coming back,' Charlie Bell muttered, and sure enough the maroon brougham had executed a languid turn at the far end of the road and was about to trot past again. "'Well, then,' Edith said, "'let's give them something to laugh at, shall we?' She reached over and grasped Edie's dolly, cradled it in her arms, and began to coo over it as though it were a real baby. Charlie and Clara joined in, and Edie and Leslie too, thinking this was a fine game. I watched as Carno's brougham glided past again, with the governor and his mistress themselves playing at happy families, and saw the moment Carno spotted that his wife was nursing a baby. His jaw dropped, and as the carriage pulled away, I could see him leaning out to get a better view, almost braining himself on a lamppost as he disappeared around the corner. The next time I saw Carno was at the fun factory. He called me into his office, and I sat across the desk from him as he tapped a pencil on his fingers. A little cough, and then he smiled, as if not quite knowing how to begin. My first thought was that Sid had finally told him about the moral turpitude thing, and I was going to be sacked. So, he said eventually... How did you and young Chaplin take to Mr. Harry Weldon? Charlie said he thought it was a punishment, I said. Carno laughed. So it was, so it was, he chuckled. But not for you, for Harry Weldon. He was throwing his weight around, so I thought I'd send him a couple of arrogant young upstarts to shake him up a bit. And you certainly did that, by all accounts. He smiled, looked down at his hands. You're living with the Bells, then, when I'm in town? So you'll have realised that... Um, that your next-door neighbour is, or rather was, my wife. I was on my guard now. Yes, I said. Does she... Um, that is to say, have you had the chance to speak with her? I have, I said. She often asks about the various goings-on. Carno's eyes narrowed. The shows, I mean. She's always very interested in what shows I've done, and all your many successes. Quite so. Carno tapped a pencil against his teeth. And you know that... "'Child who lives there with her is my son. "'Leslie? Yes, he's a grand little chap. "'You don't think him too skinny?' "'No, not at all. "'I'm concerned that she doesn't feed him well.' "'Oh,' I said, "'don't worry about that. "'He eats like a horse. "'He just runs it off, you know.' 
You would tell me if you thought he was badly treated. He's not, I assure you, Governor. Right. Carnot coughed again and leaned forward onto the desk. Now listen to me. What I have to ask you about is rather a delicate matter, and you don't really need to know the ins and outs of it all. But I happened to see, as I was passing the other day, just in the area, you understand, I happened to see a certain babe in arms. Oh? Don't give me that, he snapped. I need to know who is father of that infant, and I need to know it this minute. The father? I said, quite taken aback. Is it Bell? Is it? No. Is it you, you randy little sod? Because if it is... No, no, I cried out, alarmed at the turn things were taking. It was just a doll, that's all. A doll? A child's toy. Your wife bought it for Edie, the Bell's daughter. It's very lifelike. It's a toy. There was an awkward pause, and then he smiled again. It seemed to cost him a little effort, but he was trying to signal a return to the jollier mood of a few moments earlier. Well, he said, ha <laughs> enough of all that. I have some news for you. I need to send a mummingbirds company to Paris for a month. You can go and give that very, very fine magician I witnessed in Warrington. And you can take young Chaplin along as he's so desperately keen to play the drunk. Paris, eh? The folly berger. How about that? Thank you very much, Governor, I said, relieved. Now then, is there anything else I can do for you, young Dando? Anything you can do for me? Yes. Is there anything else that I, he patted himself on the waistcoat, can do for you? And offered both hands across the desk to me, palms up. Ordinarily I would have been pleased to be on my way, but he seemed keen to make amends for his earlier sharpness, so I felt momentarily emboldened. Well, I said, I saw someone who would be a fine addition to the company. He was working as a solo, but I've seen him in a skit as well. His name is Stan Jefferson. Carno looked curious, alert. Jefferson? Any relation to A.J. Jefferson calls himself the Carno of the North. His son, I admitted. You remember when we first met in Cambridge and you said, I had it? Carno nodded. Well, I'm pretty sure Stan has it too. I see, the Governor mused, more to himself than to me. That'd be one in the eye for old A.J. and no mistake. Ha <laughs> ha! His own son! I edged towards the door. I'm obliged to you. Carnes sprang to his feet to usher me out. See? This is good, isn't it, Arthur? I help you, you help me. That is how things ought to be, don't you agree? He caught himself there, speaking in rhyme, and smiled broadly. There's an idea for a song, half written already. <laughs> Enjoy yourself in gay Paris, lad. I'll see you in a month. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.